praise team. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 31 to 32 this morning. Matthew 5, 31 to 32. My wife graduated from the University of Mary Hart and Baylor with a degree in art. And I didn't exactly know when I was dating her what that would mean. But I came to find out after we got married and bought our first house, what it meant was we would spend all of our spare time and money at the paint store picking out what color the walls should be. And it was the same way, every, we do it the same way every time. First we'd get at least 10 different samples made. They might be completely different. They might be so close to one another that you couldn't tell the two apart. But we'd have all of these samples made, and then we'd paint squares on the wall. So it was just a checkerboard of different colors across our wall, and they would sit there for two months and that's being generous. Most of the time it's more like six months. So that we could see how the light hit it at every point during the day. And we could make sure what, what color was the right color for us. And then there was the long process at the end of that six months of arguing which color was which sample. Right? Because we forgot to tack it up on the wall. So no, I, I'm pretty sure that that was the repose gray. No, 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 that wasn't repose gray. That was pensive gray, I'm pretty sure. Then we'd get to mix it, go to the store. And the wall would be painted. But then about that time, we'd set the clocks ahead or back. The sun would adjust just so slightly in the window, and then all of a sudden the repose gray was not happy and tranquil, it was happy and thoughtful. And that wasn't the feeling that we were going for, and so we'd be back at the process again. So what we'd end up with is gallons and gallons and gallons of leftover paint that is completely useless. And you come to find out, can you take a green and turn it into a gray? You would like to think that you could, but you really can't do it that well. It's always going to have that slightly greenish tint to it. Once the paint is mixed, there's only so much that you can do with it. If, for example, you take a, a bright white base and you try to get a dark color out of it, it's never going to quite be dark enough. It needs to have that dark base to start with. Once paints are brought together, once they're mixed together, they effectively become inseparable. There's no going back to the previous paint color at all. They become inseparable. This morning we're continuing through the book of Matthew and we come to Jesus' teaching on marriage. And I think it serves as a really good illustration to think about paints being mixed together, it serves as a really Ill, a good illustration for what Jesus is going to say about this topic, particularly as it pertains to divorce. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're going passage by passage and verse by verse through the book of Matthew. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and so we've come to this topic here, divorce. Now, I say that because when a pastor preaches on divorce that can quickly become the answer to, hey, what was the last sermon you preached at that church before they ran you off? <laughs> and so I want to just, just make that as a disclaimer. I don't intend on this being my last sermon here. And no, you didn't come at the awkward time where they talk about divorce. So I came that week, y'all talked about divorce. Uh, we're going verse by verse through the book of Matthew, and oftentimes it brings up every topic and forces the pastor to preach on things that normally you wouldn't spend much time on. So if you hang around long enough, we'll probably talk about money and politics too. Um, in all seriousness, we live in a world where divorce is common. My own parents are divorced. Many of your parents are probably divorced. Or you yourself have been divorced, or maybe some, both. Your parents have been divorced and you have been divorced. 
Now, everyone in this room, though, knows someone that they're close to that has been divorced. Probably people within your own family, maybe your close friends, associates of some sort, they've been divorced. It's common to all of us. Every single one of us have been close to divorce in some way. It's so common to us that it's not a big deal anymore when we hear that word, divorce. I think Jesus' message in this text, because of that fact, I think his message in this text is really going to push back against the casual attitude with which we often approach this topic. With that, let's look at our text this morning. Just two verses, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There are at least two groups of people in this congregation that may be frustrated by the topic that we're on this morning. And I want to address both of you before we go any further. The first group is perhaps some that, have, that are single, that have never been married before. That could be anyone from young all the way up uh, to old, that you've never been married before and you're thinking, well, this, this sermon doesn't really apply to me because it's about divorce and I've never been married. So that's really uh, not something that concerns me at this moment. I want to say a word of warning to you in thinking that way. Because when the disciples heard Jesus teaching on this in Matthew chapter 19, just a little bit later, when they heard his teaching on this, singleness was one of the first things that they thought about. It was the first thing that they mentioned to him after he teaches them on divorce. In Matthew 19, where Jesus is answering some of the Pharisees' questions about this topic, he maintains the same points. He says virtually the same thing that he says in our text this morning in Matthew chapter 5. And yet when he says it there, the disciples ask him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Singleness is the first thing that popped in their mind. Look at how strict he is on the topic of marriage and divorce. It's better in my case than not to marry. And much to our surprise, and probably I'm assuming much to the disciples' surprise, Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. Essentially, yeah, but only some can do that. So to, a single, to the single people in our congregation, as we're calibrating our understanding of divorce and marriage with Jesus' understanding of divorce and marriage, as we're adjusting our way of thinking to His way of thinking, Resist that temptation and ask yourself whether or not this is God's intention for your life is to keep you as you are in singleness. It's a question we don't often ask people to think about, but I'm asking you to think about it. Not only is there nothing wrong with being single, but according to both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, it's sometimes more preferable to be single for those whom it is given. And the truth be told, God hasn't abandoned you. His desire for you, at least for this moment, is singleness. And He intends for you as a single person to pursue ministry with fervent passion and desire. Now tomorrow, His intentions may change or they may become different for you tomorrow. But I think it's wise for you to consider if the Lord's calling for your time in this life is singleness for the purpose of expending yourself in, in full-time ministry, fully in ministry. So don't think that this sermon doesn't apply to you. Use it as an opportunity to consider how the Lord might be using you in your singleness. The second group that might be a little frustrated by this topic are those who have been married and are now divorced perhaps even remarry. We're called as pastors and as Christians in Ephesians 4, 15 to speak the truth in love. And as I teach this passage, 
I do so understanding that there's many people in this very room who have gone through a divorce and have been affected by this topic in a number of different ways. And that person may be even going into this sermon with your soul bracing for the impact of the words that I'm about to deliver. And while I'm not going to teach anything other than what's on the pages of the Scriptures, I'm also not going to beat anyone up either. That's not my intention. First, I want all of us, married, singled, widowed, divorced, whatever, remarried, I want us all to calibrate our understanding of the topic to Jesus' position on divorce. I want all of us to hold His position on divorce and the Scriptures' broader teaching on divorce. I want us to calibrate our thinking to that. Hold that as our standard. And then and only then, when we're rightly thinking about God's feelings on the topic, then we can talk about our own situations and difficulties. I can't promise that there won't be anything in this sermon that doesn't offend you. You may even walk away offended at something that I say in this sermon, but I assure you that what I'm going to say stays within the boundaries laid out in the Scriptures. And that each statement I make is, I believe, warranted by the text that's in front of us and the broader text of the rest of the Scriptures concerning divorce. And so the point is that if you feel as though I'm unnecessarily mean or harsh in this sermon, I want to put the onus on you to prove that what I said is unwarranted by the words of God Himself. And if you were in a bad marriage before, or maybe you have even caused the divorce through your own infidelity or other things, And let's say you've walked away from that now and you have repented of that sin and are now maybe married to somebody else or maybe you're single. I really believe in Paul's words that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that means nothing if it doesn't offer you forgiveness of even that sin. Right? So the point is that if you walk away thinking, well, he's just picking on me. And he's just being overly mean. I assure you that isn't my voice and that isn't the voice of the Holy Spirit that's talking to you. It is the voice of the enemy who is whispering these things in your ear, seeking to devour you with bitterness and self-loathing. Let's instead come back to the Scriptures and let's calibrate our understanding of what divorce is by Jesus' words and then let the chips fall where they may. Okay? So the main focus of our sermon and of Jesus' words in this gospel is concerning the calloused posture. The way our heart just kind of becomes desensitized to the whole topic of divorce. And that's sometimes true even within the walls of the church. Even, even on the first reading of this passage, just these two verses, after we've gone through them just, just very quickly, read through the first, these two verses, even just on the first reading of this passage, you can already tell that Jesus is placing the stakes on the topic of divorce very high. Much higher than our culture is willing to do. He's placing the stakes on divorce really high. And the question in our mind has to be, Who do we really think Jesus is? What authority do we really think He has to speak on the topic of divorce? After all, He's single, isn't He? (laughs) What authority does He have to speak on the topic of divorce? And if we can walk away from this passage and we can continue to be calloused towards this topic, desensitized towards this topic, or think that it's really no big deal, then we obviously think that Jesus is just another guy. He's just another guy. And this is his opinion on the topic. However, if we truly believe him to be the second person of the triune Godhead, then his thoughts and opinions on this topic are God's own thoughts and opinions on this topic. And that we should be conformed to his way of thinking. Now with that being said, what is God's view on divorce? Jesus presents that in our text this morning. There are at least two things that I think can be said about his 
take on divorce. First, marriage is a lifelong covenant. He at least says that. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. The way I want to go through this is I want to make just two observations. And then at the end, I want to deal with all the whatabouts. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this situation? We're going to do that at the end. But the first thing he says here is marriage is a lifelong covenant. So Jesus starts out this topic the way he does all the others before. You look with me there in verse 31. He says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So you know as the Sermon on the Mount goes, Jesus is in, in this part of the passage in, in chapter 5, he's going back into the Old Testament saying, this is what was said in the past, but here's what I'm saying to you now. And he does something very similar in the passage we're in. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's obviously going back to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 as he begins dealing with the topic of divorce in the kingdom of heaven. And I think that passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, is going to be worth reading. It should appear on the screen behind me as I read it out loud. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and writes her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts in her hand, and sends it, sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. And after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, that's certainly pretty strange, I think, as we read that. This is the only teaching on divorce in the entire Mosaic Law. Genesis through Deuteronomy. The entire book of Moses, this is the only teaching on divorce. You may notice in that text behind me that Moses doesn't prescribe divorce in his law. He doesn't say you should do this. He's merely dealing with the inevitability of divorce. That it is going to happen. He says when he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now this isn't be, to be confused with God's pleasure in the topic. God isn't pleased by divorce at all. This is simply the law of how to deal with divorce when it inevitably happens. How do you deal with it in the aftermath of divorce in amongst the encampment of the Jewish people? It's basically saying that since divorce is inevitable in some cases, here's how we're going to deal with it. This is what we're going to do about it. But it can feel as though Divorce is permissible. When you read it, it feels as though divorce is permissible. And that there's virtually no consequence for it. That there's, there's no bad thing. It just, if this happens, then, then do this. It's simply procedural. So you can imagine how sinful people love shimmying through those loopholes. Right? I know I would. And if, if I was given that, I would find ways of shimmying through that loophole when it became uncomfortable for me. So by Jesus' day, a man could write a certificate of divorce for his wife if she burned his food. That's what's going on in Jesus' culture at that time. We literally have writings of, of Jewish literature in the first century that give that exact example. If your wife burns your food, you can give her a certificate of divorce. Simply for if I, if I comment on it, I'm gonna be cooking dinner for the next week, right? Like you can, and you can write a certificate of divorce for simply burning your food. So the culture that Jesus is coming into, and he, he, he is 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 giving and and talking about divorce is I'm quite certain, much like our own culture today, very open to the option of divorce. It's on the table. Jesus, however, is not so keen on it. You can see that in our text this morning. In fact, 
if you look at our text, just these two verses here in chapter 5, he rules it out completely with only one exception. Now, he takes up this topic, as I said before, again in chapter 19, where, he's, where he spends just a little bit more time on the same topic, but he has pretty much the exact same stance on it in chapter 19. In fact, there in chapter 19, he goes all the way back to creation in chapter 19. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 19, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So in Jesus' own words, when the husband and wife come together in a one-fleshed union... That union is meant to be for the duration of a lifetime. That's its intention. That's the way God had joined them together. And if it's separated, man is the one who has stepped in and separated it, not God. That's not his intention in marriage. So in our text, Jesus is conveying the the multitude of the Old Testament witnesses that demonstrate God's feeling on divorce. Malachi 2.16 says, God himself says, I hate divorce. (laughs) It's that simple. (laughs) Spelled out right there in Malachi 2.16. I hate divorce, says the Lord. It doesn't get much clearer than that. The intention of marriage is one man, one woman for a lifetime. Second thing that we need to observe in our text this morning is that sin is always involved in divorce. Sin is always involved in divorce. In the text in front of us, there's one exception that Jesus gives to divorce there in 32. He says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Notice notice it is curious that he doesn't say except on the ground of adultery. He doesn't say that. He says, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Remember in the previous paragraph, the last sermon that I preached here, the previous sermon before the convention that I preached here, he broadens the definition of adultery to lust. Anyone that lusts after another individual has committed adultery with her in his heart. In this paragraph, in our text this morning, he narrows it down and specifies that it's sexual immorality specifically as the only justifiable grounds for divorce. Because if adultery, as Jesus has just defined it, were justifiable grounds for divorce, then then a marriage covenant would be virtually meaningless in our society. To any sinful person, a marriage covenant would be virtually meaningless if the status for, or if the, if the warrant was simply lust. Because I think it's safe to say that everyone in our congregation, everyone in the world is guilty of that sin at one time or another. But notice that I said in this point, sin is always involved in divorce. That's different than saying it's always a sin to get divorced. That's different than saying it's always a sin to get divorced. That it's necessarily sinful for you to file for divorce. That's, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. If your spouse had a sexually immoral affair with another person, they have brought this sin into the marriage. And I do believe Jesus' words here permit someone to pursue divorce in, under those grounds. Now, why are those the grounds? Why is that the problem? Why is that the thing that gives the grounds for divorce? I think he answers that in chapter 19 of Matthew when he says they are no longer two but one flesh. The sexual union between husband and wife has a physic, uh, is fi- has physically, emotionally and spiritually united them together so that they're one flesh. And at that point where one leaves and joins flesh with another person, they've given grounds for dissolving the marriage. In fact, in their action, the marriage is really already dissolved in that sense. 
So in the permissible divorce, the only exception that Jesus gives, Jesus says the sin of sexual immorality is involved. So sin is the cause there of dissolving that marriage. Then, if you divorce on any other ground, you're making your ex-spouse commit adultery. That's what he says here in the text. You are making your ex-spouse commit adultery, and with whomever they marry, their next spouse is also made to commit adultery. So sin would be involved yet again because now you're implicating not only yourself in rejecting what the Lord has done in bringing you and your spouse together, but now you're causing a person to commit adultery with another person whom they marry. The presumption is that they're going to remarry because it's quite literally the meaning of divorce. The meaning that we give divorce in our day and age is, is really a separation or a, a, a going two different ways, but quite literally divorce is permission to remarry someone else. That's, that's quite literally what divorce is. And that's the way the first century Jew would have understood, understand the word divorce, is that it, it's permission to remarry. So remarriage is assumed in this process. And what happens when you send someone away without the qualifications that Jesus gives, you're causing them to commit adultery and the one that they remarry. So in Matthew 19, Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees. And they ask him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Why did he allow us to get divorced? Why did he tell us, give her a certificate of divorce? They're thinking, why didn't he just say, well, if you have a bad marriage, then just live with it. If she burns your food, just live with it. Just eat it. Choke it down, don't say anything. <laughs> why didn't he just tell us that? You remember what Jesus' answer is? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. His answer is because you're sinful. That's the reason that he allowed it. Because you're sinful. This is why the law was written the way it is. To deal with the aftermath of sinful people. We don't live in a perfect world. We live in a fallen world with people who are, 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 are at, at going to great lengths to reject the words that God has given. He says, from the beginning it was not so. In other words, God didn't create it that way. That wasn't its original intention. When he brings Adam and Eve together, that's not what his intention was in joining these two together. It's the sinful heart as a result of the fall that has brought about man's desire to separate what God has joined together. There may be some of you that are in the middle of very difficult marital strife. And I'm not trying to make light of any of that or belittle any of that. You may have gone through in the past traumatic and terrible things. And you may be even thinking to yourself, well, I don't have the grounds that Jesus lays out here for divorce, but my own happiness is really important. And so I'm going to pursue this divorce. There's one of two things that I can guarantee you are going to happen. The first is that you're a child of, of, of God. And you're running away from his commands like a gazelle in the wild. And the thing that I can guarantee you is that the lion from the tribe of Judah is going to hunt you down in the open country and bring you to the ground. And that is not going to be fun. It's going to be painful. It's going, it, it may bring you physical or spiritual pain of some sort. It won't be fun, but it will be for your good. Because he only disciplines those he loves. The second possibility, which is far scarier, is that you turn and run in divorce. 
and no one ever comes and gets you. And you never look back. In which case, you'll always be able to look back at this moment and know that this was the time you realized when you were playing games the whole time. That you had never committed yourself to following Christ and His words. Either we're seeking to obey God or we aren't. It's as simple as that. And if we're seeking to obey God, then we're seeking to obey His will at all times. Not just the things that we like, unfortunately. Now, by way of application, I want to get really practical. And I want to, I want to talk about the whatabouts. There's lots of questions that we always have about divorce. And this is not the only teaching in the Bible on divorce. Some of them consider many other circumstances on divorce. And those need to be considered as well as much as we can in the time that we have. So I want to just think about just, just three whatabouts. And these were the three that I thought were the most prominent that I've heard the most for coming from people. What about this? What about that? And what about this? And, and, and basically take these situations at face value and answer how I feel like the scriptures address those kinds of concerns. So the first what about is what about a husband who is abusing his wife? What about a husband who is abusing his wife? Right? The passage that we're in today is written to prohibit an individual from divorcing his or her spouse. Okay? It's written to you, the spouse, to say, don't divorce your spouse. It's written to you. Remember, Jesus is being countercultural. No, you simply cannot just divorce your spouse and still be considered pure in the eyes of God. You have sinned in that case. So he's pushing back against that mentality that you can live in God's revealed will and then just reject the marriage covenant. No, he's saying it's real, it's serious, and it's a sin against God. However, this is not the only way divorce comes about. Paul takes up the topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is a, a chapter you probably want to consult uh, when you get home. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he considers there other ways in which divorce might come about. And, that one, and some that we need to think about. Because it's, in particular, because this has been in Baptist news a lot lately, is the topic of marital abuse. So Paul takes up the topic of the other way around. What happens if someone just gets up and leaves and just walks out? It's not you sending them away, but somebody just gets up and walks out. Can you keep them there? Can you go after them and set them down? Yet? No, you're not leaving, the Bible says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, if this is the case, the unbeliever gets up and just decides to leave, then you can let them leave and be peaceable. In which case the marriage covenant is dissolved. Because that person in their sin simply walked out on the marriage covenant. But Paul says in that same context, just two verses earlier in 1 Corinthians 7.13, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So the premise that he's working under, or that Paul's bringing to light, is what does a person do who has come to faith... This is the group that he's talking to. A person has come to faith, but her spouse has not. Well, if that spouse consents to live with her, then you can, it's fine. Live, live with her. If he, wants to, if he gets up and decides to leave, you can let them leave and, and the divorce would be on him, essentially. But listen to me very clearly. Under no circumstances is physical, sexual, or emotional abuse considered consenting to live with. There is no way that you can define consenting to live with someone as physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. So Paul says, as long as this unbeliever consents to live with you, then, then you're married. Be married. There's no way that him abusing you physically or sexually or otherwise, that you can qualify that as consenting to live. It's just not true. That's not what Paul, is in Paul's mind here when he's talking about this. 
There's no way that that's true. So what that means then, the abuser is not consenting to live with you. And so in the event that you're being physically or sexually abused by your spouse, you need to first get out and second, get help. And our church will, me and our church will join you in praying that the Lord will use a prison sentence to convict your husband or your spouse to bring them to repentance. If you come to me and you tell me that you're being abused, I will not recommend that you go back into your home and put your life or the life of your children in danger. The solution becomes very simple. Get out, take the kids with you if that's the case, and call the police. Now, when it comes to emotional abuse, that's a much more complex issue. And so physical and sexual abuse have this point of contact where we can easily say, that happened on that date and we have, we have justifiable recourse now. Emotional abuse is very real and I don't mean to minimize it in any way, but it usually sets in slowly and takes place over time. And so often it's much more difficult to define. And so the point is that if you feel as though your spouse is an emotional abuser and you're fearful to go home because of the manipulation that takes place there, then you need to seek godly Christian counseling from people that you trust. And the right measures need to be taken. The second what about? What about someone who is a Christian but divorced their first spouse and is now married to someone completely different or perhaps even single? Now, I'll admit that the Scriptures don't spell out every single detail of every single situation that could possibly ever take place in marriage. And I run a risk of stepping in and saying something that Scripture doesn't say, and basically it's me saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So I'm not trying to do that either. I'm trying to tread softly and step only where the Scriptures step. But I'm assuming that after reading this text here in Matthew and considering 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that the divorced spouse divorces his, his spouse or her spouse on sinful grounds. You've read that and you think, okay, I think, I think it was sinful, the grounds that I divorced them under. Now what? What do I do? Well, it would be sinful not to admit that what you did was sinful. Okay, So that, that would be sinful, to not admit that what you did was sinful. And so I think you would need to make that confession, not only to God, but to all the parties involved, that what I did in dissolving this was sinful. And I'm, I'm sorry, I, re, I regret doing that. But then I think, after you've confessed that, you need to accept the forgiveness of God for your sin. And be the best husband to your new wife or the best wife to your new husband that you possibly could be. I don't think a second divorce rectifies anything that happened with the first marriage. Instead, I do think that we have to take Paul's words in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In the event that you have confessed your sins to the Lord and, that, and those that you've sinned against, to continue to wallow in self-loathing is, is to pridefully reject the forgiveness that God gives to you. It's as if you're saying, I'm the only person that can out God's grace. Look how good of a sinner I am. Salvation means nothing. If we can't really believe that He did save us even from these sins. And Jesus tells us so many times, go and sin no more. Make it right by the way you live your life now. The third what about? What about a husband or wife that feels trapped in his or her marriage? I feel like I'm, I'm drowning in this marriage that's 
pretty loveless. We don't spend a lot of time together. Maybe we don't spend enough time talking to one another. Maybe we don't do any of that. What, what happens now? How do, I, how, do I, how do I live now? Perhaps you're married to an unbeliever. The two of you don't share a common worldview. So it's hard to really have much of a way of discussion about anything meaningful, much less deep or spiritual. Or maybe your personalities have just drifted apart over the years. And it feels like you two don't have anything in common anymore. Kids have maybe left home. There could be an endless amount of feelings here that result in apathy towards the marriage. Or you just feel like, it's just pointless. I just, I don't like going home. I'm not talking about abuse, but everything else. A multitude of other factors. Listen, the biblical teaching on marriage is not a club that I'm trying to wield over you and hit you in the head with. That's not my intention here, just to ruin your fun. All right. That's not what I'm doing. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And then verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Paul's telling us that your marriage does not simply exist for your own happiness and satisfaction. That's not the reason that your marriage exists. God is revealing himself to the world through all of his creation. And marriage is part of that, is part of his revelation. So your ma- in your marriage is a blend of two colors coming together to make one new color. But make no mistake, as Jesus points out, God is the one that has brought those two colors together. And he did it to demonstrate Christ's love for the church like a master painter on a canvas. He's telling the world what he's really like, and he's using your marriage to do it. Think about the weight of that for just a second. He's using your marriage to tell the world what he's like. See, the reason that marriage is a covenant that shouldn't just be dissolved is because it's displaying Christ's own covenant-keeping love to his children. That's what your marriage is displaying. Christ's own covenant-keeping love for His children. So to the one that would feel trapped in your marriage, I would challenge you to consider a few things. First, consider Christ's relationship to you. Consider Christ's relationship to you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved you, made us alive together with Christ. The essentials of the gospel message is that we are great sinners fully deserving the wrath of God. But God loved us. That's the essentials of the gospel. But God loved us. That's the good news. That we were a rotting corpse But Christ died for us. So that by His grace through faith we might have eternal life. The second thing I want you to consider is your relationship to Christ. Christ's relationship to you. Your relationship to Christ. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Is the deepest desire of yours to obey Him? Jesus asked in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Do you know Him? Do you call Him Lord? If you don't, then Christ is calling you to confess your sins and believe in Him as the only one that could satisfy the wrath of God. And He did it on the cross. And if that's true, that you know Him, that you were purchased by His blood, 
than the links that he went to to rescue his bride from being a rotting corpse tells us everything about the links we should go to to commit to our marriages. The third thing I want you to consider is your relationship to your spouse. Husband, how can you better emulate Christ's sacrificial love for the church in how you love your wife? Wife, how can you better emulate Christ's submission or the church's submission to Christ by how you follow your husband? Christ's covenant-keeping love is not fickle. It will not fade. And believe it or not, He did not love us because we were particularly lovable. In fact, when I'm the least lovable, He remains faithful to the covenant that He made with me. When I stray from His love, He calls me back to Himself. Can you identify the significant issues in your marriage? Can you point to them exactly? The reasons that you're feeling trapped. Write them down. But don't just keep them to yourself. Write them down. First, mention them specifically to God. His Word tells us He cares about you. He wants to hear those things. Mention them to God and ask Him to resolve them. Second, mention them to your closest godly Christian friends, hear me, that have Jesus' view of marriage. All right? Be particular about that. But mention them to those that have Jesus' view on marriage, that they might pray about those things as well. But then mention them to your spouse. Not in a way that condemns them, but in a way that graciously and mercifully confronts any sin in the marriage. In a way that calls you both to pursue a lifetime of covenant-keeping faithfulness so that your marriage can be part of the painting that God is putting forth before the world to reveal Himself. I know I want to be a part of that. And I want to do it God's way. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, how difficult this topic is to wrestle with for so many of us. How difficult it is to teach. How difficult it is to consider, to think deeply about. We pray for mercy as we wrestle with our own sinful hearts. That honestly, really just most of the time want to just make ourselves right. Want to just vindicate our own actions. Grant us mercy there. Give us grace to see our sin and turn to you. Trusting that as you do time and time again, you will forgive us. Leaning on the sacrifice of Christ by whose actions and his, whose actions alone we are able to stand here and pray to you. I pray for every marriage in this congregation. Every marriage that's struggling. Maybe because of some extreme, very difficult things. Maybe just because of a, a lifetime of apathy. I pray for rejuvenation. I pray for godly Christian friends come alongside them to recognize something's wrong and to committing to helping them fix it. 
Lord, I pray that you would raise up people even within our own congregation who are passionate about helping those that are in marital difficulty. Pursue again what you're calling us to, of oneness, so that we may exemplify for a watching world what kind of covenant-keeping love you have for us. Pray for those that have come out of very difficult times and are now experiencing the kind of marital bliss that we hear about, that we long for. Pray that you would use their passion and their vigor to spread the truth about the gospel. That what they put on display is not their own hard work in picking themselves up by their bootstraps, but what they put on display is your grace and your mercy that help them see their sin and come together. Lord, it's so difficult for us to admit where we have troubles in our marriage. But I pray that you would give us friends, give us listening ears, give us wise counsel that would help us to be more open. But Lord, I pray that as we even consider it for single people in our congregation, as they consider whether to marry, whom you have for them to marry. Pray that the reality of the seriousness of the marriage covenant would weigh heavily in their decision. That no longer would we settle, but that we would pursue godly people and would not settle for less. Lord, for those that have made serious mistakes in marriage. I pray that you would convict them, but also extend to them mercy and grace. I pray for their own hearts in the matter, that you would lead them in the way that's right. That you would help them to put away self-loathing and pity. And go and sin no more. We thank you for all that you do in us and through us, to us and in spite of us. In Jesus' name, amen.